Welcome to Veteran Voices, a podcast dedicated to giving a voice to those that have served in our country's armed forces. On this series, we sit down with a wide variety of veterans and veteran advocates to gain their insights, perspective, and experiences. We'll talk with many individuals about their challenging transition from active duty to the private sector. And we'll discuss some of the most vital issues facing veterans today. Join us for this episode of Veteran Voices. Hey, good afternoon. Scott Luton here with you on Veteran Voices. Welcome to today's show. Today's show, we're talking with a veteran that's doing big things in the leadership, training, and development space and beyond, and he's got one heck of a story. You're not going to want to miss this. Quick programming note before we get started here. This program is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming. Find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and, and you're going to want to subscribe so you don't miss conversations just like this. And of course, you can search for Veteran Voices anywhere and everywhere you get your podcast from. Let's bring in our featured guests here today. I'm excited to have this conversation with Patrick Nelson, founder of Loyalty Point Leadership. He's also a veteran of the U.S. Army with 39 months worth of combat deployment to Iraq and Afghanistan. So, Patrick, good afternoon. How are you doing? Hey, Scott. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Well, really admire what you're doing. I really respect your background. I'm looking forward to diving more into that and sharing that with our listeners and as a fellow entrepreneur, some of the things you were doing on social media caught our team's eye, and uh, you've got a ton of charisma and expertise, and I, and I bet companies are just e eating it up. So great to have you here. Awesome. Thank you. Let's get to know Patrick Nelson a little bit better, the, the, the human being, before we get into the military and the entrepreneur. So tell us, where are you from, and, and give, us, you know, give us the goods on your upbringing a little bit. So I am from a very small town in the western part of Minnesota about 20 miles from the South Dakota border. It's one of those kind of you blink and you miss it type towns, no stoplights, no fast food joints except for a Dairy Queen. So not a lot to do around there. <laughs> I had a very uh, challenging childhood living out there, but it taught me to be independent at a very early age, which I think has served me very well in my later years. The rural environment, when you say it was challenging as upbringing, was it just a lack of connection with, and, and being close to friends and, and folks your age, or, or what else? No, it, it really was a lot of uh, dysfunction in my family. So I was born to, my mother was 19, unemployed, single, living off of government assistance. My biological father wasn't in the picture. In fact, I never met him until about three years ago, which is an interesting wow. story in itself because he is an awesome guy and we have a great relationship. He didn't know I existed until three years ago, until the, the, uh, the power of Ancestry.com brought us together. You know, so it was a challenging situation. My mother eventually had two more boys, and then she got married to a guy that had two kids of his own. We grew up in a very a small house. My stepfather and mother had some substance abuse challenges, so, you know, we... We saw drugs in the house, and um, I came out of school one day. I was in the sixth grade. I was walking out, and my mother was getting put into the back of a cop car, getting arrested right in front of the school, especially, mm. you know, when you go to a, a small school and you're in a small town, everybody knows everybody, and everybody's talking about that kind of stuff. So it was very difficult. Mm. My youngest brother and I will, will kind of joke to this day, and he likes to say he didn't know what a grocery store was, so he was eight or nine years old because it was always going to the food shelf, Everybody, you know, you get a bag when you walk in, you fill it up with as much food as you can, and, and that's it. That was kind of our life for a while. And from sixth grade on, I learned, uh, as I said, to be independent. I took care of myself. I bought my own clothes, um, you know, for the most part, bought my own food. And eventually, my sophomore year of high school, I ended up moving in with my aunt and uncle for about a year. And uh my mother and stepfather took my aunt and uncle to court to get me back, and I didn't want any of that. I ran away for an entire summer, um, like legit ran away, like sheriff's office is looking for for me. I was hiding out at a cabin, a buddy's cabin up on a lake. But the middle of my junior year, my stepsister committed suicide in rehab. I came back down for the funeral, and I saw my younger brothers, and I knew that they needed me, and I never left again until I joined the military, which actually kind of segues because – I came home three weeks before I turned 17, and 
all these guys in my high school were joining the local National Guard unit. And they were telling me, like, yeah, we're going to go to Oklahoma this summer for basic training. And I was like, what? Like, I'll get to go on an airplane and you're going to fly me into another state and I can get away from here? Sign me up. Like, that was my total motivation was vacation, right? And a lot of people don't think basic training as a vacation, but I wanted to get out of the situation I was in. And so uh, that's initially what led me to the military was uh, sort of the challenges I had as a child. Before we get into the military and find out more about that, your career, I want to back up a smidge because you shared so yeah. much that, I mean, we, we, could, we could set up a 10-hour interview and, and not <laughs> unpack it all. But I want to focus and ask you a follow-up question on that reunion with your father after he, I think you said he wasn't aware that he had a son until three years ago where some Ancestry.com seemed like they, they stepped in and helped y'all make that connection. Tell us about that, that moment when you both realized the nature of your relationship. Obviously, I knew I had a father out there somewhere. He didn't know he <laughs> had a son. I used to try to talk to my mother about it, try to get a name. I heard several different names. I heard several different stories from people in the area, extended relatives, some that were very difficult to hear. And so I really didn't know what to think. But one of the names that I was given was a very generic name, Roger Benson. Not very unique. And I'd done some you know, cursory Google searches on that name probably while I was in high school and, you know, not really a, a ton popping up or, or maybe too much mm. popping up that you can't really uh, decipher through it. So I just kind of gave up and, and didn't think that, you know, it was really going to happen. Yeah. Fast forward to after I'm out of the military, I'm back home and I sign up for ancestry.com because I wanted to know what my heritage was. I knew right. my mother's side. I never knew my father's side. And so I get the results and I'm you know, pretty much majority Scandinavian, Norwegian, and, and Swedish, as I would have assumed. But I didn't know one thing they did on Ancestry was compare your DNA to other people and let you know if you have matches. I had happened to log in again well after, you know, looking at my initial report. And it said, you have 15 potential matches of relatives or whatever. And I started going through them. And most of them were, you know, third or fourth cousin. But one of them said, high probability first cousin. And she had the last name Benson. Oh. So, you know, little bells are starting to go off in my mind. But she lived in the Virgin Islands. And so it was difficult for me to make the connection Minnesota, Benson, Virgin Islands. But I, I think I had to upgrade my membership on Ancestry so I could message her. I did that, sent her a message, kind of a, a fire and forget. Didn't hear back. And I think I got pinged on an email like six, six months later saying, Susie Benson has re replied to your message. And I had just wrote saying, hey, here's my story. Do you know a guy by the name of Roger Benson? She said, yeah, that's my uncle, which would wow. make sense if she's my first cousin. And more and more messages were exchanged. And uh, at the same time, she's messaging him as well. And, of course, it's just a complete shock to him. He's like, uh, sounds like a scam to me. <laughs> Lo and behold, so she was originally from Wisconsin, a little closer to my neck of the woods, and uh, had made her way out to the Virgin Islands. Anyways, she puts him and I in contact via email, and I mean, everything basically lines up. He remembers, you know, my mother, he was in that area, he, he went to college out in that area, played college football, we pretty much knew. But we went to an independent lab and, and did a uh, separate DNA test, like, so we, didn't, we hadn't met yet, and then... Um, you know, we got the results back, 99.999% chance. It's either basically that or zero. They, they won't give you 100%. So then, yeah, so then we met. Uh, it was just him and I on the first occasion at a coffee shop, and uh, and it was awesome. He's got a, a lovely wife he's been married to for, for a long time, and, and I have a sister who just graduated college a couple years ago, so, so they had an uh, only child, and we have a fantastic relationship with them. And, you know, we, we've got a couple girls in our family, so they love being grandparents. And, you know, we all went to Hawaii together uh, last year. And it's just been really, really great. And what's interesting is we only live like 30, 45 minutes apart this whole time. And what's even more interesting is, so he's been a season ticket holder at the Minnesota Vikings since like 1982 or 83, basically when I was born. Well, I used to work for the Minnesota Vikings in football operations Wow! for a season. And so, you know, my job was taking care of players and coaches. Uh, he's a huge Vikings fan. So he, he's at every single game 
and I'm, you know, kind of roaming the sidelines before the game. All the, it's, it's like we're in the same stadium, uh-huh. and he, he's, he's first row on the goal line as well, his season tickets. Wow. So it's like how many times did I walk past this man, you know, my father, and not even knowing it? So just kind of a yeah, very interesting story, but a, a very great guy. I appreciate you sharing all of that, including some of the challenging circumstances we couldn't get to. But that's great news. That's a, a heart, heartwarming, a, a feel-good story, and it's so neat that y'all have found that connection. Got to have, have a great relationship, and and now you're you've got a sister you didn't know about, and and you've got a relationship there, and and uh, so that's out, outstanding to hear. All right, so. Going back so we can go forward, clearly the reason you joined the military, it was, it was kind of a um, parachuting out of, your, out of the situation you were living in. Uh, as you put it, um, a lot of folks don't look at basic training as a vacation, but you looked at it as kind of a, your ticket out of the situation is kind of what I heard there. Is that right? Yeah, no, it absolutely was, Scott. It was a, a great break from my situation. So I went to basic training between my junior and senior year, came back to high school for my senior year, and I barely graduated. And I, I wasn't a stellar student at all. When I mean barely, I mean, they had to create a special class just for me within the last two months so I could get a required credit Wow. Uh, okay. in order to graduate. You know, people didn't look at me growing up and say, man, that kid's going to go do some great things someday. <laughs> How wrong they were though. <laughs> I mean, and we'll touch on that momentarily. Yeah. So it sounded like a delayed enlistment type plan. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, that, that was the plan. So I graduated high school and two days later went back to Oklahoma for my specialty training, advanced individual training, AIT. And, you know, even when I was in high school, I didn't really, I didn't have parents to take me on college visits, um, help me fill out FAFSA forms, applications, stuff like that. So I got back from Oklahoma in August of 2001 and enrolled in a, a community college that was in my area. And you know, three weeks into the first semester, I was already skipping classes. Mm. So it, I think it's safe to say I was headed nowhere pretty fast in terms of college. But as you remember, and I'm sure many of your listeners do, that, that Tuesday morning in September changed all of our lives. And uh, two days after the attacks, I dropped out of college and I went regular army. So I, I transitioned from National Guard to regular army that took a, a lot of paperwork and stuff. And so it was January of 2002 when they officially uh, shipped me off to my duty station. So in the army, talk, talk about your, uh, what you did, your role, your, your um, MOS, what, what'd you do in the army? Yeah. So I had to keep the same MOS that I had in the national guard. They weren't going to send me back to a new school. Uh, so I was a 13 Bravo, which is a cannon crew member, field artillery, working on howitzer cannons. And so what's interesting is my very first duty station, they sent me to this small little base in Babenhausen, Germany. It's kind of outside Frankfurt area. Yep. And they had a rocket battalion there. And so I shot cannons, which are two completely different systems. And so I get assigned as the colonel's driver, the brigade commander's driver. <laughs> Now, I didn't drop out of college after 9-11 to drive the colonel around and make sure his coffee was warm. Right. And so I happened to be at a training exercise there in Germany, and I saw these guys parachuting out of the back of a helicopter. And my first sergeant was standing next to me, and I pointed up, and I said, that's the stuff I want to do. <laughs> and thankfully, he had some good connections. And a bunch of paperwork later, I got reassigned down to the 173rd Airborne Brigade based out of Vicenza, Italy. And they sent me to uh, airborne school where I became a paratrooper. I was a data analyst in the Air Force, Patrick, so bear with me. Paratrooper school, where, where is that at? Fort Benning, Georgia, and it's three weeks long. I should know that. That's, that's not, you know, not too far from where we live, about two or three hours away. So what was the h- toughest thing about success, successfully navigating through and graduating that program so that you could you know, do what you what caught your eye, jumping out of planes and, and you know, fulfilling your, the whole reason you joined the military? I think that, honestly, the toughest thing was, so this is February of 03 when I got sent to airborne school, and I was afraid that my unit was going to leave me behind and they were going to go to Iraq uh, without me. So that was the toughest thing. I just wanted to get it done. Mm. I think anybody that says they're, that they're not scared when they jump out of airplane is a liar. You know? <laughs> so I, I definitely was scared every single jump I did. Uh, you definitely have that feeling. I'd say the, honestly, the hardest thing, so I was 
in shape. I mean, you're in the military and everything, but your body kind of takes a beating when you're practicing what they call a parachute landing fall, a PLF. And so I, I, I can still remember to this day, like after practicing all day on this contraption known as a swing land trainer, the next day you go in formation and it just smells like Ben Gay and Icy Hot because everybody's so sore. Uh, you know, it's like after the first day of football practice uh, of, of tackling with the pads on. Yeah, so that's something that I definitely remember is kind of battling that soreness. And what a lot of people don't know is about paratroopers in the military. It's not like a skydiver where you kind of come in nice and soft and you land on your feet. You know, you're falling 18 to 22 feet per second when you're mm. under the canopy. So it's a pretty hard landing. Again, bear with me because this is a foreign mm. territory. You want to get from the plane to the ground in as fast of a, of a speed that you can survive so that you're not basically an exposed target. Is that some of the thinking there? Yeah, you're jumping from maybe 1,200 feet above ground level, if not uh, lower. You're hooked to a static line, so ideally your parachute should open within four seconds of you exiting the aircraft. And, yeah, you just want to get in the ground and do your mission. All right, so fascinating, absolutely fascinating. So as you graduated airborne school, and as we laid up up front, 39 months of combat experience in theater in Iraq and Afghanistan, before we talk about some of your favorite people you worked with and those may work for you and folks maybe you reported to, you know, give us some anecdotes of your combat experience, especially as it relates to you uh, as a paratrooper. Fortunately, I, I graduated airborne school, and I got back, and we, they were prepping to go to Iraq. Uh, we were getting all the vehicles, everything ready. And so on March 26, 2003, elements of our brigade conducted the largest mass combat parachute jump since the Vietnam War into wow. northern Iraq. It was more of a diversion than anything. Most of the other troops were coming up from the south. Saddam had anywhere between 11 to 13 Republican Guard divisions up in the north. We wanted to sort of get their keep their attention up there so they didn't go reinforce the units in the south. We were supposed to have two artillery sections jump in out of six that we had in our unit. My section was one of them. So I just got back from airborne school, and now I'm going to go parachute into Iraq. Unfortunately, they scratched those, I think, like 36 hours before the jump because what you often think of Iraq, you think deserts. But northern Iraq, grass and mud. And the landing zone was just so much mud, they said our howitzer cannons, would have, it would have taken us three days to dig them out. So we did not end up jumping. I, I arrived the next night after the infantry guys had secured the airfield. We landed the next night by C-17 and, uh, and got rolling on our missions. And uh, I was part of the, uh, the first elements from our unit to fire a round in combat since the Vietnam War. We conducted two artillery raids behind what's known as the Green Line in northern Iraq with, with the Kurdish Peshmerga on April 6th and April 8th, 2003. So that was sort of my first taste in combat. I was 20 years old, and it was, uh, it was wild. We had a Congressional Medal of Honor winner on a previous episode that really, uh, it, it's been, when you hear combat firsthand, especially you know, if you haven't been in combat like me, to hear some of the frank stories and, and the decisions you've got to make there in the moment in the fog of war, it's very powerful and compelling. For you, when did it, uh, you were just talking about kind of your first experiences. When did, when did combat first, the challenge of combat, the, the, the human toll it takes, when did that, what, at what point did that hit you? You know, I don't think it was in, until we lost our first soldier via combat, and that was end of July 2003, and it was a, a friend of mine from my unit, a, a forward observer, Justin Hebert from Washington state and, and he was killed when they were um, ambushed. And, you know, that obviously really hit home up until that point, you know, we transitioned from, you sort of had the uh, more traditional war, I guess, if there is a such thing. And then there was sort of a lull and then the insurgency started picking up. And I think we were very fortunate at first, but then, yeah, when, when that happened, that's when things really kind of started to, be a little more real. I think at first felt like, you know, you kind of had that feeling like you're bulletproof almost like, oh, nothing's going to touch us. And uh, eventually it did. Years and years later, certainly thoughts and condolences and huge 
debt of gratitude to the Abear family and, and all the other folks that served with, you know, lost so much national treasure over the last 20 years. All right, so let's move right along uh, on, a, on a much lighter note. We all in service, I bet in combat, you know, the people you work beside that you're in the trenches with, regardless of which way, who's reporting where, talk about some of those folks that, that you serve with that really, you know, you'll be telling your grandkids about down the road. The next deployment I did was for 12 months and it was my first one to Afghanistan. And our platoon leader was this lieutenant by the name of John Post. And he had, had graduated out of West Point. And there's, I, I think, a certain stigma against officers that come out of West Point. But John is somebody that is the epitome of a servant leader. Even for somebody so inexperienced as a, a platoon leader, a, a new lieutenant, this is the type of guy that could sit you down, and I, I saw him do it with soldiers, and just tell you the 12 different ways you sucked at life. <laughs> but you'd leave that conversation with a smile on your face, you know, ready to charge up the proverbial hill for that man, you knew he was going to be there right by your side. He was going to give you every single resource you needed to succeed. And he was going to be your biggest cheerleader. And that's somebody that I've really modeled a lot of my leadership behaviors off of is John Post. And now he's, he went on to become a Green Berets and is serving as a battalion commander within uh, Army Special Forces right now. Uh, I love that. In the same conversation, he could tell you all your uh, deficiencies and leave you amped up, ready to run through walls. That Man, that yeah. must have been a very unique leader. Who else really sticks out like uh, the then Lieutenant Post clearly did? Yeah, and another great one is a, a guy by the name of Greg Trent. And so Greg and I went to Iraq together. After Iraq, we came back. Greg went to Special Forces Assessment School, which is basically three to four weeks long, that you have to be accepted just to get into special forces school and, and Greg passed. And so he came back to Italy where we were stationed. He was waiting on his school assignment date and we got orders to go to Afghanistan. And so Greg said, you know what, I'm going to push back my special forces school. I want to deploy with you guys again. You know, everybody always kind of talks about the family and the brotherhood that you form. And in Afghanistan though, we, uh, they assigned Greg to our headquarters element, you know, kind of keep him off the front lines and everything. And uh, he did a great job of taking care of us. And, you know, I had got wounded early on in that deployment. And I was back there at Bagram Airfield healing up. That's where Greg was based out of. And I had the opportunity to return to Italy to recuperate, or I could stay there at Bagram Airfield. And, you know, I didn't have a family at the time or anybody to return home to. So uh, I just kind of hung out there at Bagram Airfield for about three weeks. And Greg had a conversation with me. He said, hey, you need to get back out there with your guys. They need to see you. The last time they saw you, you were getting loaded on a helicopter. You know, we had some soldiers that were killed. He's like, it's important for them to see you. I, I was a, a newly promoted sergeant at that time. Uh, so Greg was giving me some great advice. And so he was in charge of like the helicopter manifests and, and different things like that. And so he snuck me on a, on a helicopter, even though I wasn't technically supposed to fly yet. And I got to go back out there with my soldiers. And it was an awesome opportunity to be able to get out there. I can't go out on any missions or anything right away, but just being there with the guys, I think was a very big morale booster. Anyways, we, we got back from that Afghanistan deployment. Greg went on, earned his Green Beret. And unfortunately, he was killed in an ambush in Afghanistan in 2012, August 2012, while operating with his special forces team. So you mentioned you were wounded. How did that happen? Yeah, so June 8th, 2005, we were operating out of a small Ford operating base on the Pakistani border. And uh, we had two artillery sections out there supporting some special forces, Navy SEALs, and some of those other government agencies. And every time we'd get resupplied with the helicopter, one of the artillery sections would stay back in case they need to provide fires. The other one would be tasked with downloading the helicopter. This specific morning... My section was tasked with staying back, watching the radio. The other section was going to go download the helicopter with some ammunition we were getting resupplied on. It was June. Snow was melting in the mountains. Fighting season was picking up. And uh, I headed over to help the other section because they had a sergeant leaving on R&R. &R. So I was going to backfill that position for them. And uh, I'm over there kind of hanging out. And my buddy Luke and I are talking, and we heard the sound of a Chinook helicopter coming in. So we got in a Humvee. 
And right at the last second, my soldier, Emmanuel Hernandez, hopped in the back. Now, he was supposed to be back there with our section. And so I turned around, and I was, I was going to yell at him. But I thought for a second, you know what, he's, he's showing the kind of work ethic that I value in the soldiers. Like, he wants to come lift some heavy boxes. I know that our guys will be just fine without him and I. Uh, so I didn't say anything. And as I was turning around, I realized he did not have his helmet on. And so I literally opened my mouth, but then realized I didn't have mine on either. And it's kind of hard for me to say something if I'm not doing the right thing. We got out to the landing zone. A group of 10 of us stepped to the side of the aircraft because they had to take the machine gun off the back ramp. The, the guy was having a little difficulty getting it off. And my platoon sergeant handed me a piece of paper with some serial numbers to items we were expecting. So I grabbed that piece of paper and I turned my back to this small circle because I started ground guiding Luke, who's in the Humvee, get him closer to the back of the helicopter so it's not too far of a walk with these heavy boxes. And the next thing I remember, I was, you know, picked up and just slammed right on the ground. No idea what happened. I look up, I see blood, I see bodies. The helicopter powered down, and I heard the distinct sound of an incoming rocket. Hmm. So I quickly got up. I dove underneath the Humvee for cover as rockets impacted all around. As soon as the barrage ended, I, I crawled out from underneath, and I started running back to the guys that were still on the ground. They were kind of unsure of what I was going to find. And as I was running, a Marine that was on our base yelled to me that I'd been hit. Up until that point, I hadn't felt any pain. And, you know, you always hear about the adrenaline and stuff like that. And I turned my head and I looked at the back of my uniform and it was shredded and blood was pouring out. And it was like that instant, the pain just hit me. And so they loaded us into whatever type of vehicle they could find, brought us to this Afghan clinic that was within our base. A local Afghan doctor would see locals from there. And now my wounds were very minor compared to everybody else. I took, you know, I got peppered in the back with shrapnel, I still have a few souvenirs in there that I took home with me, but uh, compared to everybody else, I was pretty good. So I got bandaged up real quick by Luke and I started, you know, trying to see who else was hurt, what was going on. I was pretty much in shock had a lot of confusion. That's where I saw Michael Kelly, a supply sergeant, and he's laying on this elevated stretcher and that local Afghan doctor who worked in the clinic was sitting on this red milk crate and he's performing CPR on Michael. I, I do a quick lap around the clinic, see who else is hurt. I see my platoon sergeant, the one who just handed me the piece of paper at the serial number. Uh, the femoral artery in his leg is severed. Uh, other severe wounds to his abdomen and his arm. And I come back around to Michael, and he's now on the ground, and they're zipping him up into a body bag. And it wasn't more than 30 or, or 45 seconds. And then I, I make my way into this small room in the clinic, and that's where I, I find Emmanuel laying on a table unconscious, his head is bandaged, people working on him, but I could see his chest, you know, rise and fall. So I knew that he's breathing and grabbed his hand. Just so, Hey, everything's going to be okay. Medevac helicopters arrived, brought us all to forward surgical teams. They removed a bunch of pieces of shrapnel from my back. A couple of them were too deep. They left them in there, sent me back out to the landing zone for another helicopter ride to Bagram airfield for more advanced care. And as I was waiting there, my commander approached to see how I was doing. And you know, I told him I was going to be just fine. And I, of course, asked about Emmanuel, and he said he was going to be okay. And, and I just felt such relief. And, you know, he, he turned to, to walk away, and he got about three or four steps, and he turned around, and tears were coming down his cheeks. And he said, I'm sorry that I lied. Hernandez didn't make it. You know, I just dropped to my knees, and, and, and I lost it. You know, he died because I didn't have the courage to speak up and say something. He took shrapnel right through his head. I wasn't doing the right thing as a leader. You know, I beat myself up for a long time after that. And, you know, I tried to um, drink the problem away, tried to wash it away with pills. Obviously, none of that helps. It only serves as an accelerant for other uh, mental health challenges you might have. But I've learned that I can take that story and I can impact the future. I can influence it. And so I've taken that story and I share it with others want to share about my heroes, but to also let them know the differences that we can make in people's lives. Sometimes the smallest access service can have the biggest impact and you will never know if you don't do it. I really appreciate you sharing that. It boggles my mind how fortunate we are 
that those that have never been called to serve in combat and you know we complain about the the stupidest things and i'm guilty as charged i'm pointing at myself and to hear these wartime experiences of real challenge and stressors in life and and the immense sacrifices that folks like you make it, it just it it blows me away each and every time i really appreciate um you sharing patrick we're gonna talk about what you're up to now here in a few minutes but first 39 months in combat, hearing some of these experiences here, I can only imagine all the accomplishments that we can't get to here today. But what's what's one or two accomplishments? Uh, you've kind of already shared a couple lessons learned that clearly apply in what you do now. But mm-hmm. what else would you point to that you really hang your hat on that you're really proud of what you and your team were able to get accomplished? You know, I finished two years of college while I was in the Army. After I got wounded and I got back out there with my guys, I couldn't go out in any missions. I can wear any body armor. I was still had stitches in me, so on pain pills. We were fortunate to be working with special forces and Navy SEALs, so we had fast internet, even though we're living in mud huts on the Pakistani border. So I started plugging away at online college classes between my two Afghanistan deployments. My next one was 15 months long. I, I finished all my general studies, and I was uh, really, really proud of that. First one, you know, from my family to, you know, complete any type of post-high school education. And so while you're in combat, Patrick, holy cow, <laughs> huge accomplishment. How, how in the world do you do it? Yeah, you know, it was, it was interesting. Um, we'd get done, um, you know, all night shooting fire missions or something like that. And all the guys that would rack out and I'd have to stay up and write a paper or something. It wasn't the, the traditional college experience, but nonetheless, uh, something that I, I am so glad that I did because it really set me up for success once I got out. Now you, you just, it's like you're reading my mind where we're going next. Perfect segue. As you got out, let's talk about your transition. You know, this is this, as we were talking pre-show, this is, you know, since I got out in Oh two and, and then I've gotten in the industry and, I've had countless conversations with veterans that have had a wide array of experiences when it comes to transition, oftentimes extremely challenging. The good news is employers uh, have gotten more serious with real action, not lip service, around trying to understand that transition, trying to understand what they experience in the military, and trying to get them on board and give them jobs and giving meaningful work, which has mm-hmm. kind of been the uh, second or third wrinkle here in recent years. But still, we've got no shortage of, of challenges and really improving that transition experience. Let's talk about yours. So when you what year did you exit the Army, active duty? Yeah, so I, I left the Army in December of 2008. In January 2009, I was sitting in a college classroom with a bunch of 18- and 19-year-old kids. Lornette Vestal came on uh, a few, few episodes back, and he talked about how when he exited, he also – had combat experiences, how difficult it was to find friends and, and folks that could relate to and, and kind of foment those relationships. How, how challenging was that in terms of your transition, kind of going back as you've been you know, 18, 19-year-olds, and, and you know, you've been 40 months in combat? I'd say it was non-existent. You know, I didn't really make a lot of friends in, in college. I wasn't there for the social experience. I'm not a very book smart person. I've had my IQ tested. I'm not very intelligent, but I got A's in every single college class I've ever taken through two master's degrees, except for one. And again, it's not because I have this high intelligence. It's, it's amazing what you can do when you focus. Mm. And, you know, I wasn't searching for the next party that night. You know, I knew that this was, I needed to get this right the first mm. time. So I really applied myself. And it's amazing what you do when you do the readings, you know, you do what the teachers tell you to do, how <laughs> successful you can be. Yeah, so I wasn't out, you know, trying to make a lot of friends. I was just ready to take on this challenge and, and complete it. You know, I, I got out and I started looking for jobs, but, you know, late 2008, early 2009, not a good job market for anybody. Right. I, I applied for over 70 different jobs and I didn't get one single callback. These were all jobs that were hiring. Jobs that I could do while I was in school. I'm talking about like everything from selling insurance to, you know, Walmart, McDonald's, different places like that. And, and I, I didn't get one single callback. And it was tough at first, but I think it just fueled me even more that I had to be successful at what I was doing. And so my first job outside the military was watching children jump in an inflatable football helmet at the Minnesota Vikings training camp. I was hired as a marketing intern. 
and it was funny, the very first day, you know, the, uh, the person in charge is basically another intern, um, and he's going down this clipboard telling us where we've been assigned, and he gets to me, and he says, you, you need to go watch the kids jump in the football helmet. You know, I was 26. I, I definitely felt a lot older than I did. Looking back, 26 is still very young, but I had all the time in combat. I had a bronze star, a purple heart, all the time leading soldiers and, and responsibility I had, and now I'm relegated to watching the kids jump in the bouncy house, and that was a big wake-up call for me, understanding that, hey, you're basically starting over, and you need to prove yourself again. And, and I think I did that, and eventually, you know, I ended up, as, as I alluded to earlier, working with the Minnesota Vikings in, in football operations. At the time, what I thought was my dream job. Turns out it wasn't, but it still was uh, an awesome experience. Touch on a minute on that more, I mean, elaborate a little more on that. You know, I think one of the challenges we've certainly seen as it relates to jobs for veterans, um, and it's gotten a little bit better. But a few years back, you know, there was a lot of reporting around the underemployment of our veterans. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, we all know the challenges we're seeing with our veterans and, and from a mental uh, health standpoint and, and far worse. I've always thought that even the numbers have gotten better and support seems to have become more serious uh, where there's resources being invested by corporate America. Still, soldiers, airmen, Marines, sailors, we've got a sense, strong sense of duty, and, and, and you want to produce, right? You want to be part of the mission. Mm -hmm. And kind of what you spoke to there, if, if you're in a job that, that's below your, your experiences, it, it can be deflating, to put it mildly. Speak more right. to that, and, and, and have you had any other conversations where you know, that's still a big, big issue out there for veterans? And, and First of all, I just want to say, and I know that you know this, we're fortunate with the resources we have. I, I think back to the Vietnam veterans, Cold War era veterans, and obviously ones well before that, and the lack of resources they had. Great point. It's still not good enough with what we have now. We know that. But um, I try to keep things in perspective as much as I can. And, um, you know, we are pretty fortunate. Back when I got, got out in 08, it wasn't great. It's gotten better, but again, it's still not where it needs to be. And I think the idea of finding meaningful work, I'm really glad that you brought that up because one of the things I struggled with the most was finding that purpose again. So when I joined the military, I, you know, post 9-11, signed up for all those patriotic reasons. But when I was in, it was just another job. You don't really think about that patriotic and duty stuff when you're, at least I didn't. And, you know, it was just another job. It's like, you might be um, a car salesman and well, I'm a soldier and it's, I don't work nine to five. I get up a little earlier, but that's just my job. And it wasn't until I got out and I'm in the civilian world and I start reflecting on my experiences and what I did and realize like, whoa, that was something much bigger than myself that I was part of. And so I'm trying to think like, how am I going to, you know, replace this sense of purpose that I had? And I realized after a while that I couldn't replace it, you know, as far as like duplicate it exactly. I never was going to be able to do that same exact thing again. However, that didn't mean that I couldn't find a, a new purpose. And so eventually I, I ended up creating this nonprofit organization called Real Combat Life. Did you say create it? You founded a nonprofit? Yeah, that's correct. And, and so it's not up anymore. Um, I had taken it down. It started out as an individual blog. It was realcombatlife.com. It was a chance for me to share my stories in writing. A, a lot of people always had questions. They didn't really know how to approach it either sometimes, you know, and, and that's no fault of their own. But a lot of times I didn't, wasn't ready to talk about it yet. And so I just sort of started writing things down and said, would direct them here. Hey, go check out this. And, you know, I was also motivated by the sense of I'm a, a huge fan of history. It was, it was one of my majors and, you know, documenting those stories so I can remember them and share them with my family when I get older. And it was very therapeutic for me. And so I, you know, invested a little bit of my own money and opened it up um, to other veterans to submit and share their stories. And then I ended up winning this $25,000 grant from Pepsi. Wow. And so Pepsi one year, I was called the refresh grant. Instead of purchasing a Super Bowl ad, they were going to give a bunch of money away. And so to people with good ideas. And so you had to submit your idea online and then the public voted. And, and they were in all different types of categories. And, you know, I was a kid with a website. I had no idea what I was doing. I wasn't a, a grant writer or anything like that. <laughs> And it was a total grassroots, like, social media in initiative. And uh, I'm going up against these large 
nationwide organizations like the VFW and the American legions that are competing for these grants. And I end up in uh, whatever top percent of the voting and I won. And so, um, yeah, I, I use that money to invest it even more. And again, opened it up to, to more veterans. And I ran that for a while while I was going to school and it, it got to be a lot because it was just me and, and a couple volunteers. And then once I, I got done with college and got into the workforce and, and looking for jobs and stuff, that became more and more difficult to keep up. And so I just kind of kind of let it go. But uh, it, it was a great opportunity. And I know that there were a lot of veterans who got to share th their experiences in writing, some that uh, you know, I'm still in contact with. I actually just messaged one yesterday and, and shared a video with him that wow. him and I have never met. He's a former Special Forces soldier down in Iowa. But it was, um, you know, great to make those relationships with uh, other military men and women. Clearly, you've got founder dynamics, founder DNA. We'll touch on your, your current entrepreneurial venture in, in just a minute. Let's pick your brain. I want you to be a consultant to those that are getting ready to transition or in the, or in the throes of their transition. What are, what are a couple pieces of advice you would, you would share with folks? Obviously, have a plan and understand that, uh, you know, just like any plans in, in the Army, they're going to change. I had seen so many guys get out that didn't have a plan. You know, they get out and say, I'm going to take a month off. I'm going to go to school or something, but it never happens. So before I'd even got out of the military, I'd already signed a lease on an apartment I bought a car because I was stationed over in Italy and everything. So I had a car waiting for me. I already had applied and been accepted to college and already had a, uh, one scholarship lined up. So one, if I wouldn't have had that plan, it would have been much more difficult. And then an, another thing, don't just sit around. You, you got to do something. I mean, yeah, take a little break maybe for a week, but you can't just sit around and play video games all day as much as you want to um, get out there, be proactive and surround yourself with the right people that have your best interests in mind, the, the John Post in your life, right? Not people are going to be the yes men or women that are going to tell you what you want to hear, but those that are going to tell you what you need to hear. And also use your benefits. So many get out and don't use their education benefits and, and some are able to transfer them to dependents, and that's great. Others don't have that based on, uh, you know, their time and service. And honestly, I, I think you're a fool if you don't use them. Even if it's, you know, you're working full-time and you're taking uh, just like one class here and there, utilize those benefits. They're there for a reason. You know, uh, going back to having a plan and, and taking action, for some reason, as you were sharing, I uh, was thinking of my out-processing checklist, and, and those can be pretty long, and, and how – Deflate when I first got it, how overwhelmed a bit I was. But, you know, right. just knocking out a couple bites of an elephant day in and day out while you knock out mm -hmm. whatever your, your charge is for the day, you know, a couple bites of elephant, right? And, and before you yeah. know it, you've eaten a, a three-ton animal. All right, so let's, let's talk about now what you're up to now with loyalty point leadership. And I love, clearly, you've got that entrepreneurial spirit. And, and it's, it's always interesting to see all the different places that that can come from. But speak, speak about the genesis of this venture and, and what you're doing. It's interesting you say that the entrepreneurial spirit, and I, I see how you can think that, but I honestly never thought of myself as an entrepreneur. Like I never had any desire to start my own business, absolutely none. I think I had a lot of fear behind it, like how do you do it? <laughs> Wanting to make sure I was on the up and up as far as taxes and legalities and stuff. I, I let all that kind of cloud my judgment. But the real genesis of this is February this year, while COVID was still in its infancy, I lost my job. It's a job I had had for five years. It took me all over the world doing some awesome work, leadership development work. Um, it sent me back to school. I got another master's degree in organization development from Pepperdine. Yeah, February, I get let go. And my wife and I, we're in the middle of the adoption process right then. We had just went through what's known as a failed match in the adoption world, which is we lost out on $15,000. The birth mother we were matched with uh, was basically scamming us in the agency. And it's a, a risk that we knew going in. Of course, you never think it's going to happen to you. But more than that financial investment, it was the emotional investment that was very difficult for us. So I lose my job and we have to decide, are we going to continue this adoption journey? We had already been on it for about 11 months. You know, do we want to continue when I have no financial security? And after a lot of prayerful consideration, we did. And, and um, you know, we brought home a beautiful daughter at the end of May. But so I, I get the news on the phone. Hey, you've been let go. 
the writing was sort of on the wall, so it wasn't a huge shock, but I cried uh, again because I had no idea how I was going to provide for my family. And so after wiping away those tears, my wife and I were sitting right down here in my office and uh, just sort of chatting and um, talking about our feelings. And I log on to the Secretary of State website here in Minnesota and I create an LLC and I'm off and running. Really, honestly, no idea what I was doing. Kind of like the blind squirrel, right? I'm just kind of feeling my way around, trying to figure things out as I go. Uh, reaching out to any resource and contact out there that I think can give me any bit of advice. Honestly, I've just been very proactive about it. I knew I couldn't stand by and just wait for the phone to ring itself. I had to get out there and, and sort of uh, beat the pavement, even in a virtual world. And, and so that's what I've done. And uh, it's, it's, I, I think a lot of people, they can kind of reflect on situations like this. It's been a huge blessing in disguise. Mm it certainly has not been without its challenges and it's still very challenging. We're, we're, we're struggling, but at the same time too, I keep it in perspective. It could be a heck of a lot worse. There are people who have it much worse than I do. All of us are being impacted by this. So I'm just going to keep doing what I do every single day and I'm going to make it work. Let's talk about what the company does that you formed. You're yeah. in kind of startup early stage mode. Every business goes through it. So no, that you've got a lot of kindred spirits out there in the entrepreneurial community. But w so what is, uh, what's the main thrust of the business? Yeah. So loyalty point leadership, it's, it's the one man shop. It's me, Patrick Nelson, and, and I'm a leadership development consultant. I I'll partner with organizations to offer leadership development training that I facilitate. And a lot of it really is rooted in my military experiences. I look at behavior or leadership from a behavior standpoint that, you know, leadership's not a position or title. It's not, I mean, we expect it out of people who are bosses, but you don't always get it. I think all of us could point to somebody that we've had as a manager and be like, no, that person's not a leader. And in the military, one of the most, as you know, bureaucratic organizations out there, you wear your rank on your uniform every single day. Everybody knows exactly where you stand in that hierarchy of command, but yet you can still find leaders at every single level. And even the lowest ones, and they're not in charge of anything. Well, what is it that makes them a leader? It's their behaviors. It's their actions that they demonstrate. You know, oftentimes I'll have people say, I'll ask them like, hey, you know, describe to me a perfect leader if one ever existed. And they say, well, you know, they're empathetic and they're a good listener and they're fair and honest and integrity and they motivate people and vision, all, all the stuff we know. Right. Well, those are not exclusive to being the boss or being in charge of people. It's not like, all right, Scott, now you get promoted. <laughs> now you need to be a good listener. Right. Now you need to start being empathetic, right? Anybody can do that with the right development and training and experience. And so that's one thing that I try to bring to organizations is, is helping them sort of get through those misconceptions of leadership and bringing it from a behavior standpoint. And also now what I've been focusing on a lot is just um, using my story to inspire others. I found that, you know, during these challenging times we're in, not a lot of people are looking for that leadership development training, which I can certainly make an argument for it's needed now more than ever, but a lot of companies are kind of slashing those training budgets, right? And I get it, but there's a very strong need for some inspiration out there and a positive message. Employee engagement is down across the board, across industries, and that's impacting the bottom line. And so I've really been focusing on trying to, you know, hop on Zoom calls, any type of virtual event, and just bring my inspirational message, you know, that's rooted in, in leadership. And also that I pride myself on bring some practicality and some sustainability behind it. Because you can bring in a lot of people that will entertain a crowd and uh, they'll tell a good story and maybe tell a few good jokes. But it's kind of like a sunburn. It wears off after a few days. So again, I pride myself on not only bringing that great story that's going to inspire people, but leaving them with something that they can actually take away, start implementing and have some sustainability behind it. Patrick, you say you're not a smart guy. I, I completely disagree with you. I think you're, I think you're extremely intelligent. You've proven you, your experience, what you're sharing with organizations is, is, has worked, right? It's been proved out. So mm -hmm. uh, undoubtedly you've got some, uh, some huge months ahead and I'm so glad you shared some of your story here today because Folks need to hear you. You've got a lot of uplifting, hey, it's not that bad. Let me tell you about some stuff that's really bad. Right. Or even better, here's some things you can do 
to, to better empower your workforce, to be a better leader, to change the, tra the trajectory of your team or your organization. So looking forward to big things coming from Loyalty Point Leadership. I also I share this with you. We're on our fourth venture as an entrepreneur. I wouldn't, cha wouldn't change it for anything else in this entire world. Mm -hmm. And it started with me getting fired. And it started completely blindsided. There was no writing on the wall. And I don't think I ever would have jumped out and formed my very first venture unless I got kicked out of the tree, at, you know, off the, off the limb. And right. while that was a whole bunch of suck for a long time, we're now building a multi-million dollar business and beyond because of that really bad day. And we had a family. I had a, my, my third child was on the way, and I, I can relate so much to what you're sharing. You're going to break through, and you're going to do big things, and it's going to be the best things that ever happened to you. So uh, I'm so glad we connected. Let's make sure that we can get you connected with our audience. So how can folks connect with you, Patrick? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, uh, LinkedIn, Patrick Nelson, you know, looking for me under Loyalty Point Leadership. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram. Recently joined the Gram uh, after some <laughs> some advice from Bobby Bones. Um, he, he said, you got to get on Instagram, man. And so Patrick J. Nelson, 1983, is I'm on Instagram. And uh, yeah, and, and the website, obviously, loyaltyleadership.com, loyaltypointleadership.com. <laughs> We're going to make it really easy. We're going to list those things in the show notes. We're all after that that one click. It's what we try to offer our audience to make it really easy to connect with our guests. And I've got, you know, there's going to be no shortage of folks, I'm sure, want to compare notes and hear and engage with you firsthand. So, Patrick Nelson, you got so much to share, uh, and that's just what we were able, able to, to get through over the first hour. So we'll have to have you back later, maybe as we uh, get into, thankfully, 2021, right? Yes, sir. Anytime. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us here uh, to our audience. Hopefully you enjoyed this as much as I have. We've been talking with Patrick Nelson, founder of Loyalty Point Leadership, and, a, and again, a veteran of the U.S. Army with 39 months worth of combat in Iraq and Afghanistan, and I bet thousands and thousands of stories we couldn't get to today, but hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, on behalf of the entire team here at Veteran Voices, uh, we invite you to find us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. Better yet, if you got a story to tell, reach out. We'll try to work you into our programming schedule, and you know, we'd love to make that happen. Uh, on behalf of our entire team here at Veteran Voices and Supply Chain Now, this is Scott Luton signing off for now. Hey, do good. Give forward. Be the change that's needed. Be like Patrick Nelson, for sure. And with that said, we'll see you next time here on Veteran Voices. Thanks, everybody.